We're going to turn tonight to the Word of God in Psalm 107. The psalm is a, a psalm that's somewhat like the book of Job. It's a, a psalm of wisdom, uh, a psalm that talks about suffering, and as well a psalm of worship and praise. So let's uh, turn together to Psalm 107. We're going to read the first 32 verses uh, together right now, and then we'll come back to the latter part of the psalm uh, later on. So hear now uh, the Word of God, which is living and powerful as He speaks to us by it. Psalm 107. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. For He satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul, he fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners and affliction and irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquity suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of His deeds in songs of joy. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works in the deep, for He commanded and raised the stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. Let's turn to God again in prayer and ask for his blessing on this. O Lord, our God, as we bow before you, we do ask, Lord, that you would Bless your word to our hearts and minds, that you would speak, that you would work by your Holy Spirit, that you would override our weaknesses and sin, Lord, 
mine and your people's, Lord, and that you would graciously teach us and bless us, cause us to see you, Lord, more clearly than we have. Teach us your ways, Lord. Give us a heart that understands your will so that we would praise you for your steadfast love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this psalm, in its first verse, opens up with this great call to praise, to worship of God. If you turn back with me to Psalm 107, verse 1, we see that immediate call. The first thing we read, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. And the question why is answered immediately as well. So what we're supposed to do is give thanks. The next thing that's answered is why. Why should we give thanks to the Lord? The psalmist says, for He is good. This is the character of God. God is good. He's entirely, infinitely, perfectly, thoroughly good. God is the source of all goodness. There is no one who is good like God. Everything good comes from God. His his goodness is unchanging. It's eternal. It's infinitely vast. So the psalmist says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is the one who is good. And give thanks to Him, he says, because His steadfast love endures forever. God is not only all goodness, but He's also a God who has this steadfast, steady, eternally unchanging, steadily continuing love that never ends. It's unchanging, it's strong, it's powerful, it doesn't waver. So these are two profound reasons that we have to give thanks to the one who has created each one of us for who he is. Well, verses 2 and 3 of this psalm tell us now who is to be doing this proclaiming or giving thanks. It's, it's already clear in the fact that the psalmist has called us as readers of this psalm to give praise to God. But we're told a little bit more. Who is to give thanks? It says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And so, those who have been redeemed by God, purchased by God, brought to Him, says who He has redeemed from trouble. Everybody who's redeemed by God is redeemed from trouble. We're redeemed from the trouble of our sin, from the trouble of rebellion against Him, alienation from Him, from the trouble of a devastating future reality of judgment. And the psalmist says, these people, these redeemed of the Lord, are people he's gathering in from the lands, from east and west, north and south. And so the psalmist's call here to praise and to worship God for who he is, it's not just a call for Jerusalem, it's not just a call for Judea, it's a global call that goes everywhere that God's word goes, everywhere that God's redeeming people from trouble. Charles Spurgeon sums this up this way. He says, The redeemed have overwhelming reasons to declare the goodness of God. They have a Redeemer who's so glorious. The price paid for their ransom was so immense, and their salvation is so complete. Well, this great call to thankfulness is really unfolded to us now in the rest of this psalm that we're going to look at tonight in a very surprising way. 
in a way that I think we might not expect. It really begins with four scenarios, four real-life stories of profoundly deep trial, of significant suffering in life. The first of those four is this trial in the wilderness that we see in verses 4 through 9. There the psalmist says to us that some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. The picture here is being lost in a desert wilderness. There they are, or there you would be. It's hot. It's scorching under the sun. And there's just sand and rock and scrub as far as your eye can see. And you've been walking and walking and walking. Your water is gone. Your food is gone. And as you look around, there is no source of anything to sustain your life. And fear increasingly grips these people that are lost there in the wilderness. Fear, maybe as they look at the skeleton of a dead animal laying there, that they too will die of thirst, of hunger. Terror and hopelessness seizes them. Why? Because suddenly they realize that even deeper suffering is lying ahead. Death is looming before them. And they're lost. They can't find their way to any city, to any village. It's hopeless. Fear grips them. A biblical picture we could think of is Hagar and Ishmael. As they run out and leave Abraham and and get lost in the wilderness, this utter loneliness and fear of hopeless, fearful hopelessness looking to death. The second sad story is found in verses 10 through 16. Here we read of people who are sitting in darkness in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Where the first example of a profoundly deep trial of suffering that seems utterly hopeless, that's just crushing these individuals, really gave us no hint that it was particularly related to you know, any specific sin in the lives of the people lost in the desert. In this example, it's very clearly a direct consequence of personal sin. Here they are. They're sitting in prison. They're chained. And they're in a place of brokenness and hopelessness, in an awful place. And it's because of their own sin, very plainly. Again, biblical examples, Samson. We could think of him as he's blinded and chained due to his own sin. Or King Manasseh in 2 Chronicles, who God allows to be imprisoned and afflicted. Now, the third case study, another picture uh, to heap it on, another picture of suffering, of profound suffering. We read in verse 17, some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. This is another picture, just like the last one, 
God is giving us here by his word a picture of personal sin bringing in God's providence profound consequences of deep trial. God in chastisement brings affliction, and the, the language used here is of sickness. Here we see men and women in these verses who, who foolishly loved and chose sin, now suffering because of their sin, a consequence that God brings into their lives, what appears to be a profound physical illness. In fact, they're so sick, they feel so utterly awful, their bodies racked by illness, that even the thought of food makes them overwhelmed with nausea. They just feel wretchedly sick at the thought of food. They can't think of it, let alone eat it. As the pain overwhelms them, as they're wasting away in sickness, in sickness that is bringing them steadily closer and closer to death, we read they're drawing near to the gates of death. Again, Scripture gives us examples, doesn't it? The plague in the wilderness Miriam's leprosy. David in Psalm 38 writes about a sickness that he had uh, where he just felt uh, just utterly broken. Then a fourth example. Some went to the sea in ships, verse 24 and following, or 23 and following. Doing business on great waters, they saw the deeds of the Lord as wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men, and they were at their wits' end. This scenario that the psalmist brings to us, again, doesn't have any connection specifically with sin. It's kind of like the first picture that we saw. There's no particular sin mentioned here that's, that's leading to this, but there's this a tremendously difficult situation here we have merchants, sailors, men who have lived their entire lives on the sea. They've been surrounded by the oceans by creation's declaration of the glory and majesty of God. And explicitly at God's command, a powerful storm rises, and the waves rise higher and higher in the howling winds. I don't know if any of you have been out on Lake Michigan or maybe on the ocean uh, when the wind starts to blow hard or a storm comes. We were once going with our family just a year after we moved here to Beaver Island. And it's a little ferry, and it's about a two-hour ferry ride. And as we went out, it was in July, and a storm came. And the waves got bigger and bigger, and this little tub of a ferry was pitching back and forth through these waves. And it became so steep, the waves, that you'd pitch up one way, and all you'd see was sky. And down the other way, and all you see was water, the waves smashing against the deck, and the deckhands looking terrified as they were hanging on. You could not walk because the deck was pitching back and forth so steeply. This is the picture we have here. You, you couldn't walk. It's like trying to walk like a drunken man. There's no way you can hold yourself up. And as you're in the midst of that, what do you think of? What do these men think of? I think of the very real possibility that that ship might capsize, that it might sink, and they might drown there in the midst of the sea, choking in water that overwhelms them. 
And again, we can think of biblical pictures where, where God specifically appoints this in history. Jonah, as he goes out and tries to go his own way, and God brings this terrifying storm. Or the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. And so far, this call to praise and worship God from his, for his steadfast love and goodness, we enter these four real-life stories of profound suffering. And it doesn't really look from any of these accounts, that there's a lot to praise God for His steadfast goodness here. It seems like His wrath, His judgment. So what's common to these four scenarios of deep trial and suffering? Well, first of all, we see explicitly in the text that each situation is fully under the hand of the Almighty, holy, and good God who is the covenant Lord. Each one of these situations comes by God's exact appointment. Secondly, we see in in two of these situations, the sickness and prison illustrations the psalmist gives us, pride, rebellion, self-centeredness, a life pattern of sin is, is being brought to a place where it's going to be shattered through trial and suffering. In the other two, there's, there's no specific sin, but really it's clear from the text that a general self-sufficiency is about to be shattered through trial and suffering. We see this in verse 5. We read their soul faints within them. In verse 12, uh, uh, they fall down and there's no one to help. Verse 18, they draw near to the gates of death. And verse 27, that reeling and staggering like drunken men and completely at their wit's end. Yet, these trials are not for the condemnation of the people listed here. God is holy. And we would rightly deserve that they would be. But instead, as we see things unfold, we see that this is actually for salvation for spiritual transformation, and for spiritual growth. Now, how do we know this? Well, look with me again at these four scenarios. We'll look at the latter end of each one. What do we read as as these people are totally shook up, as they're crushed, as they're brought to the end of themselves through hard things, as the last little bit of their self-confidence is stripped away. We read four times, then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. See in verse 6, verse 13, verse 19, verse 28. Now, we might think that at this point, these people are at the lowest of the low. This is the worst place. They're under the mighty hand of God, and they're just in an awful situation. But actually, these people in each case are now at this point in their suffering and trial at a much better place than when everything was going well. They're at a much better place at this point than before they entered the wilderness. When everything was going well and they had their stuff with them and they were going off on their journey. They're at a much better place than when... Uh, Life was sailing along, and they were pursuing a a life of crime, apparently, and uh, things seemed to be working out pretty well. 
They're at a much better place than just before God struck them down with sickness because of a pattern of sin in their lives. And a much better place than when they started off from the harbor at the beginning of a sea voyage and everything was calm and it was looking great, looking like a great trip off to their destination. You see, God could have let them, just as He could let us in our lives, in in perfect holiness and justice, He could let them or us glide along in a comfortable life of self-sufficiency or a comfortable life of sin. And slowly our hearts would harden increasingly and become increasingly unrepentant, and, and God could allow this to continue until these people died with no sufferings, no storms, with no trials, with no difficult situations. And, and we know that God does allow that to happen in our world today. In our own generation, there are those who are are continuing in love with sin, comfortably walking along towards God's wrath in hell. But what the psalmist tells us is, is here in love and mercy. What does the Lord do in His power and in His majesty? He appoints these things. He touches their lives. He just speaks a word. And he he shatters them. He brings them into significant suffering, even within an inch of death. Now, C.S. Lewis said this, Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. This is why in each of these scenarios, these hard places for these people are actually better places than where they were before because in this suffering, in distress, they're actually brought into a a good place of relationship with the Lord or a better place than they had been before. Why? Because they start to realize how much they need Him. They realize that the Lord alone is their hope. He only can sustain their lives. He only can save. He can only be the one who can really do what's needed in their situation. Once we think about that, just two thoughts of application as we're moving along. One would be when trials come into our own lives, and we all have them, it might not be a storm on the lake or beginning lost in the desert. It could be things in family life. It could be so many different things, small or big. Our response, the pattern we're seeing here is run to the Lord. When you hit difficulty in life, the first thing we are called to do here is is run to the Lord. Run to Him and, Lord, Lord, help me. Give me wisdom. And we should pray as well as the psalmist does in other places. Search me, try me, Lord. See if there's any wicked way in me. And lead me in your way everlasting. Because sometimes, and not always, some of the trials that come into our lives can be connected with specific patterns of sin in our lives. But certainly just for us to grow in grace generally. We should pray, Lord, help me to grow closer to you as I go through this hard thing. Help me to grow 
in the sweet goodness of your love more fully through this. Secondly, what about when we pray for others? We all know people who are suffering and going through trials. And we often pray that God would end that trial, that He would heal them, that He would solve things. But do we pray, Lord, save them? Lord, teach them. Lord, mature them through this. Lord, please grow them through this. Lord, please do the work that you would desire in their lives through this trial. Please turn this suffering to rich blessing in their lives and through their lives. Knowing that the Lord is faithful, that the Lord appoints our sufferings in just the right tailor-made message, measure for us. As Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1 and Paul in Romans 8. This doesn't mean that we don't grieve suffering. This doesn't mean that we're not sad. It doesn't mean we don't cry out to the Lord to, to end the suffering. But with the psalmist, our desire should be that we and our friends, our family members, be able to say with the psalmist in Psalm 119.71, it's good for me. It was good for me to have been afflicted so that I might learn your statutes, so that I might learn your ways, so that I might know you better, so I might love you more, so I would be more thankful to you. Lord, it was good that you brought me through this valley of trial. Then it's good. Then it's born fruit. Now, the psalmist doesn't leave us here or all of these people here in desperation crying out to God in distress. He moves us along now to see how good and incredibly merciful the Lord is. Not only does He give each trial at the right time in just the right measure, He also relieves them at just the right time. In His steadfast love, He is the God who delivers. He saves them out of their distresses. And again, the psalmist repeats that over four times to hammer it home to us. Verse 6 as they cried out, it says, and he delivered them from their distresses. Verse 13, he delivered them. Verse 19, he delivered them. Verse 28, he delivered them. The psalmist is telling us, look to God when you have trials. God is the God who delivers. He's the God of deliverance. But the psalmist unfolds to us, the Lord speaks to us here by his word, telling us, you know, he doesn't just save or just deliver, sort of uh, putting us back to our original place. Look with me to the way the psalmist unfolds this. We read in verse 6 that he delivered the people in the wilderness from their distress. And what did he do? How did he do that? He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. It says, let them thank the Lord for a steadfast Love his wondrous works to the children of man, for he satisfies the longing soul. The hungry soul he fills with good things. And we see the same in the next scenario. In verse uh, 14, he brings them out of the prison. He brings them out of darkness. He breaks their chains. He delivers them uh, from uh, this destruction. He bursts their bonds apart shatters the doors of bronze, cuts into the bars of iron. He gives them freedom, the blessing of freedom. 
He says he heals them from their sickness. He delivers them from their destructions, from the destruction of their own sin. In verse 30, he calms those storms. He makes them glad. And he brings them to their desired haven. In each case, we see, yes, God brings this discipline, this difficulty. He brings deliverance. But then through this, he actually brings his people into something far better than where they were before. He brings us into closer relationship with him, into richer blessing. Now, we might ask, and, and some might say, or the question might rise up, but, but I know people, I know, I know Christians, I know people I love who I've prayed for, and we cried out to God for their deliverance. Someone we loved who was dying of a disease, and they died. Dear Christians who suffered a lifetime with the brokenness caused by the sins of other people against them. And the trials just didn't seem to go away until they died. Did he do it for them? How did he deliver them? Well, the answer here is like the answer for Stephen when he's being martyred. Yes, sometimes God appoints hard trial that brings us right to death itself. But even death is no obstacle for God's gracious deliverance of His people. Death with all of its unnatural ugliness, with its raw awfulness, also comes at God's appointment. But when we're in Christ, its sting has been removed, and, and it becomes the doorway into the ultimate deliverance, the deliverance that we're longing for and looking forward to. Entering the glory of heaven, the reality of being face to face with Jesus without any sin, without any suffering. As Paul said, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And so death is no obstacle to what the Spirit by the Word is telling us in this psalm. He's saying, look, God is good. He's merciful. He's tender and kind. He brings Trials to you who are his children, tailor-made for you. He's gracious in his steadfast love, and he's doing so to pull you away from self-reliance, to, to break patterns of sin, to help you to grow in every fruit of his spirit. He loves to answer your cries and your prayers, and he does so at exactly the right time and in the right way. He showers us with undeserved blessings. Well, the total package of this, what we read in this psalm, it really anticipates Jesus in all that it says to us. How, how does it do that? Well, think about it. Who went through the wilderness? Suffering hunger and thirst. Jesus did. So that we might be delivered. Who was bound for our sakes? Jesus was. Who suffered physical agonies to death itself? Jesus did. Who went through storms at sea that were terrifying? Jesus did. He did without sin. He did it all as the perfect Lamb of God. He did so not because He needed to be woken up spiritually. 
He did so not because he needed to be saved or he needed to be sanctified or he needed to put sins to death in his life. He didn't. He didn't need any of that. He went through all of these things for us, for his redeemed, so he could be a perfect Savior for us, who could sympathize with us in every way. And Jesus went on. He suffered the most profound distress that has ever happened in this universe. The most profound cosmic suffering. And when he cried out, there was no answer. There was no deliverance. On the cross, there was no answer from the Father. He cried out, my God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? He suffered right into the full weight of suffering of what it's like to be under the infinite wrath of God for eternity. Why did he do it? So that this psalm could be written for us. He did it in God's triune, steadfast love for sinful, foolish people like us. So that in infinite, steadfast love in and through Jesus, the way could be opened wide for us to receive God's welcome, to come to Him in our deepest needs and deepest trials. And this is why the psalmist calls us to praise. And we see this again repeated over through the psalm at the end of each one of these short real-life stories of suffering. What do we read? Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, verse 8. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, verse 21. Verse 31, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Verse 32, let them extol him, in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. It's to bring us to worship as we have our lives snapped into focus and we start seeing that these hard things and these trials that we experience are in God's good sovereignty and why they're there, even as we walk through them. And knowing that Jesus is fully sufficient for us in them to grow us through them or even to wake us up for the first time through them. How many of us didn't have in our lives points of trial maybe when we weren't walking with Christ, we weren't Christians at all, and God graciously used pressures in life, hard things in life to break our stubborn rebellion. Well, from this high point of seeing what God is doing in steadfastly loving us, in powerfully loving us, in tenderly loving us, even with hard things. The psalmist now brings us to the conclusion, verses 33 to 43. We'll read those together. Now turn with me to your Bibles, verse 33. This is really sort of a, a wisdom reflection on what's been said so far to meditate, to think about, and to apply these truths. So it tells us about the Lord. He 
turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water, and there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields, they plant vineyards, and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing, they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. God's love, his steadfast love, it's rich, it's multifaceted, it's holy, it's powerful, it's who he is. And the psalmist here is telling us it's God who's sovereign. He sustains this world, he sustains your life, and he's weaving the tapestry of everything perfectly. As he brings history along to its conclusion, he's, he's the one who is bringing holy judgments into the world right now and loving discipline and gracious, loving salvation. He's the potter or the clay. This is the God, the Lord of glory, the creator of the heavens and earth, who we came to worship tonight, the God of all goodness, all grace, and all wisdom. We're in His presence. We're with Him. We're here to sing His praises. And so He tells us, be wise, attend to, observe these things, and consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Let's pray together. Oh Lord our God, we thank You for Your vast powerful, holy, steadfast love. Lord, we thank you that in your providences in life, the things that you bring into our lives, including the hard things, the hardest things, the deepest trials, are wisely appointed, are your wise touch, your wise word into our lives to break the power of sin in our lives, to sanctify us, to draw us closer to you. And, O oh God, we pray that by your grace and your gracious work that you would do all of that in our lives. Lord, we pray that you would make us easily teachable by your word and spirit. You would help us to see your steadfast love Help us to see that you welcome us with open arms, uh, even when we've been mired in the deepest sin, to run to you, to flee to you for forgiveness and for the strength to put sin to death and to grow in your grace and living to your glory. Lord Jesus, how we thank you that you are the one 
who went through all of these things and so far beyond that our minds cannot wrap around it. As you took a weight of suffering and of distress without deliverance for our sake so that we could have deliverance and so that our sufferings need not be condemning sufferings but instead can be sanctifying, blessing sufferings that bring incredible goodness in their wake. Oh Lord, we long for the day when this will be made complete, fully complete. We long for the day that we will see you face to face in heaven and we look forward even more to the day of the new heavens and the new earth when our bodies and the bodies of all our loved ones are raised incorruptible. And we see the fullness of your steadfast love and goodness poured out in all its riches. Lord, we pray, bless us to that day and help us, Lord, to love your people well around us and love those who don't know you. With this, your word, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.